It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode... Can I see your papers, please? Should we bring back ID cards? It's an idea that's been floated by Stephen Kinnock, Labour's shadow immigration minister, as a possible solution to the migrant crisis. We've talked a lot about that uh, today. That's coming up in just a moment. Uh, we've got our economist panel, uh, Daniel Finkstein and Jane Merrick, in just a moment. But first, do you fancy going to the House of Lords? Lara Spirit, Times Red Box reporter, has got the scoop on who Boris Johnson is sending to the Lords as part of his resignation honours list. Uh, Lara, take us through who is uh, being measured up for the ermine. So we've got 12 names on this list so far. They include four sitting MPs, so Johnson loyalists, Nigel Adams, Nadine Dorries, Alok Sharma, and still current cabinet minister, obviously the Scottish secretary, Alistair Jack. Uh, Then there's David Ross, the multimillionaire, Tory donor and co-founder of Carphone Warehouse. There's Ross Kempson and Charlotte Owen, those two uh, young, historically young peers, as you said. Uh, And then there's Ben Houshen, obviously the uh, Tory mayor of Tees Valley, uh, Sean Bailey, uh, the former mayoral candidate who was obviously forced to resign from the London Assembly following that photo of him at a party breaking COVID rules. Uh, Long-time aides Dan Rosenfield and Ben Gascoigne, they've, they're not surprises. I think we were expecting those two uh, to be on this list. And Colvin Ranger, who had worked with uh, Boris Johnson in City Hall. So those 12 names so far. Dan Roosevelt, the guy who organised the Bring Your Own Booze Party. And formerly Chief of Staff to Boris Johnson. To Boris Johnson. Yes. Um, on the MPs, four MPs, four sitting MPs, are they going to all trigger by-elections? Well, this is the big question. So uh, Steve Swinford, our political editor last night, said that uh, these MPs are planning to defer their peerages until the next election. We reported that that was a plan that Liz Truss had hatched last month in order to avoid what would be, uh, under current polling, obviously a series of very damaging by-election defeats. Now, we thought there'd be up to eight MPs on this list. We know of at least one who's been taken off it on this slimmed-down list amid these fears. Now, there's no constitutional precedent for a sitting MP to defer their peerage in this way because essentially when uh, you're approved as a peer, you are you essentially become one. So what constitutional experts have told me is that it would amount to sitting in both houses simultaneously. Uh, and there's been a lot of mutterings inside the Lords about them being potentially very unhappy about this. So I think we'll see how that issue plays out. It could actually, when I spoke to people about this, risk a showdown with the King. Uh, the Prime Minister, it's understood, would need to advise the King over this kind of new arrangement of peer 
candidate appointments. But of course, the alternative is to have four by-elections, two of which uh, Alok Sharma and Alistair Jack seats are pretty marginal. Yeah. And actually, uh, Nigel Adams uh, and Nadine Dorries seats, notionally safe, but of course we've seen historic swings uh, and by-election defeats for the Conservative Party, and that's before they were polling uh, just as badly as they're polling at the moment. So you could be looking at uh, four defeats, obviously not uh, an early present to Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, and I think something they'll be looking to avoid if possible. And what should we make of Ben Houchen, the Tees Valley Mayor? Of accepting a peerage. Could he could he do that while still being a, in the Lords? As far as I understand it, yes, yeah. yes, he could. He's of course uh, was was a very big champion uh, of Boris Johnson, specifically his levelling up agenda and the centrality of the levelling up uh, platform in the 2019 Conservative manifesto uh, and since. So uh, while he's a relatively new face-ish, it's not surprising to see him there at all either. He's considered one of the big successes of, uh, of the Tory party in this parliament. And we should talk about Paul Dacre. Uh, yes. Currently busy editing the Daily Mail. Uh, his, 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 uh, um, his peerage has been a bit on and off, but it's back on. Well, it's also said that uh, he is on this list. We're not certain about that. But uh, yeah, as you said, uh, it was reported that Holak had raised concerns about him before. You can see him fishing it out. <laughs> um, and it's possible that he they were going to try and have another go at trying to get him on. Uh, it had been reported that he'd been taken off that earlier political list. It's important to note that this is, of course, not the only parting list of Boris Johnson. There was a much delayed political list that created 13 uh, new peers that we saw last month. Now, if these go through, uh, both the kind of list that we've reported on and that 13 peer list that has gone through, that would amount to 30 or so new uh, peers as a result. That's more than double Theresa May uh, and David Cameron's parting list. So I think as well as the uh, controversy of the nature of some of these characters and names, the actual size of, of this list at a time where the Lord's stated ambition is to reduce itself uh, in size. You heard Mel Stride on uh, Times Radio this morning uh, saying that th- there was a big problem with its size. I think that will be a big focus going forward as well. Lava Spirit there. And of course, you can get Lara and Patrick Maguire in your inbox every morning. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. You need to be a subscriber, but you must be by now. Right, uh, off the back of that then, let's talk to an actual member of the House of Lords, Danny Finkelstein for The Times, and Jane Memick, who frankly should be in the Lords. Uh, she's the policy editor at the Eye. It's time for this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Normally on a Tuesday, we'd have Finkelvich. Uh, we have got Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. Uh, but no, David Ivanovich. He told us he's gone to the zoo, although you're sceptical about that, Danny. I'm pretty sceptical about it, yes. Uh, so instead we've got Finkelwick. It's Jane Merrick Hello. for the eye. How are you? I'm very well, You've thanks. not been in before. No, it's very nice. It's fancy, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a long way from the Independent on Sunday, <laughs> which is where Jane and I used to work together. And then it shut down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the House of Lords. Uh, and Lara's story in the paper today about the couple of dozen people that Boris Johnson is going to put in the Lords, including some people in their 20s, or at least one person in their 20s. Are you, are you, Danny, you're in the House of Lords. Are you excited about this latest in, influx? Look, I think, I, think it's, I think it shows that it's increasingly untenable to keep appointing people to Parliament, and we've got to visit at the very least the appointment system. I haven't got an objection to the age of the person being appointed. It's actually useful for the House of Lords to have experience of all kinds, if we're going to have that kind of system at all. But you cannot have a system in which, and, I, you know, and I'm a beneficiary of that, so I speak from experience, in which essentially the composition is just the wash-up of whoever was Prime Minister and how many people they had the chutzpah to appoint. That just cannot be right. And it's become obvious, increasingly obvious, and I think it does undermine the, the good work that the House of Lords does. The, the, the problem I've got, 
all along is what you replace it with because if you have an elected house you'll either get one that stops everything or one that allows everything you know because people would just vote down party lines um and so it is quite difficult to see how you combine a a a primary chamber and a secondary elected chamber um so it may be the right thing to do other countries do yes and it may it may be that we can use a model from another country it may be that we want a british model that somehow visits this appointment system but this can't be right you know you can you you can just sort of see it as a as a matter of common sense and however much you might have a sort of political theory to involve yourself in it you know you just look at it and think "Mm." and i certainly did i looked at it and thought well that's just not acceptable and you know look even older to someone who's not in the house of lords than it looks to me when i am in it (laughs) (laughs) so on the list four four current mps alistair jack who's currently the scotland secretary nadine dois the former culture secretary nigel adams is a former minister alok sharma who's the outgoing cop 26 president there were 20 uh altogether ross kempson uh formerly of times radio uh he and then he went in and did that great job of keeping Boris Johnson in number 10. Uh, he's been rewarded. He's only 13. Charlotte Owen is a former assistant to Boris Johnson in her late 20s. Dan Rosenfeld, former chief of staff. Yeah. He uh, was the one who organised the Bring Your Own Wine Party. Ben Gascon, a former deputy chief of staff. What do you make of the list, Joe? Well, I don't know what this says about Boris Johnson lowering my expectations, but I, 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 I was expecting to be more shocked by this, actually. <laughs> no, no interior designers, gold yeah. wallpaper um, purveyors. But yeah, no, I think I think I agree with Danny. You know, I've nothing against the age of people going into the House of Lords, but it does it does make yeah. ridicule the system that it is basically just packing with cronies. I mean, we're reaching 800, I think, yeah. now. All the quality, by the way. I mean, Ross Kempsell, we all know that from hearing him. He's a very intelligent, capable guy. It's one or two of the other ones I don't know. Uh, but he's a very capable, intelligent guy. So I've got... There's nothing to do with the with the quality of the individuals who are chosen. And I don't have a problem with those people, you know, representing broadly Boris Johnson's point of view, because actually in the House of Lords is substantially more liberal than most of Britain. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's perfectly reasonable for him to address that too. Um, but I just don't think the system can be right where it's... But this is the bottom line, and maybe this, this is the fundamental yeah. problem with the House of Lords. If Ross Kempson wants to vote on the laws of the land, he should stand for election. Yeah, well, look, that's, that's absolutely uh, correct. If you see the House of Lords as having a substantial role in kind of making legislation, if you see it as a, having a role merely in reviewing legislation and in trying to improve the quality of the detail of legislation, um, then I think, you you know, a bit like the court system, the judges make lots of legal judgments yeah. that change the law, and they're not elected either. You can have a system like that, but you, but you have to have a better appointment system if you're going to deal with that, just as we do with the judiciary. And you can't have it simply... You know, and, and as I say, I'm a beneficiary of that myself. Uh, and, you know, I even, I'm, I'm even uncomfortable with that in my own regard. Are you now of the view that the House of Lords days are numbered? I, I, look, I think politically I've always felt that it was the case that one of the few things that the, the, the left will be able to agree on if they ended up without a majority but in power is constitutional reform of different kinds. And so, yes, um, I, I am of the view that predictably it is numbered my as i said my problem with replacing the house of lords entirely as opposed to reviewing the way that appointments are made is what do you uh, do about the house of commons having a majority of one party and the house of lords with another party and because the, the thing is we don't have a written constitution and therefore it's very difficult to keep the powers of the second house except by convention yeah right? Uh, Jane, it's an interesting question here, isn't it? That going into the next election, the last thing Keir Starmer wants to do is be bogged down in arguments about what to replace the House of Lords with, even if 
he thinks that that's the right thing to do. And I know Gordon Brown's doing a lot of work on this, and you know, but you know, in terms of what the Labour Party wants to talk about on the doorstep of the next election, it's not this. Yeah, it's not going to be a vote winner at all. I mean, he's he wants to talk about cost of living. I mean, I agree with Danny. It's really difficult to know how you replace it, and actually. The House of Lords doesn't just do review legislation. There's really interesting debates. There are really experienced people in there. At the start of the pandemic, for example, there were you know medical experts, legal experts talking about way ahead of actually the House of Commons. Really interesting debates. So I think it does have an important purpose, and I'm just not sure there is the political appetite for it. I mean, David Cameron tried it and yeah. then run into trouble over it, obviously, in the coalition. So I think it's a, it's a nightmare. It's just one of those things we have to put up with, probably. Uh, let's move on and talk about um, somebody who's not yet going to the House of Lords, although give it time, Gavin Williamson. Sir Gavin Williamson, if you don't mind. Uh, endless stories now about what's... I mean, it started at the end of the last week about his behaviour, the text messages he sent, and the most recent one in The Guardian claims that he told a senior civil servant to slit your throat and jump out of the window. Uh, the unnamed official claiming that Gavin Williamson d- deliberately demeaned and intimidated them. He strongly rejects the allegation and says he enjoyed good working relationships with the many brilliant officials he's worked with across government and no specific allegations have ever been brought to my attention. It's been going on now for almost a week, Jane, uh, having had a previous week where the whole story was about why Rishi Sunak had given a job to Thriller Bowman. This sort of having a broad cabinet of right across the party turns out gets you into a pickle. Yeah, and I think the the question will be, at what point does this start to become damaging for Rishi Sunak? He's got the autumn statement next week. There's obviously he's in COP now. He was having to field questions at COP Climate Change Summit about Gavin Williamson. It's not great. And we sort of know that he had to give Suella Braverman a a job because there was a a deal there. And similar with Gavin Williamson, you know, he's been a long-term supporter of Rishi Sunak. But it's starting to kind of crowd in. The kind of stuff, the policy stuff that Rishi Sunak should be getting on with and actually quite a lot of MPs want to get on with. So I think a few more allegations like this and he's probably going to be out. I'm dubious that it will have much political impact. I don't think people are that interested in this story. Let me start with my basic position, which is I don't think Rishi Sunak should have appointed Gavin Williamson to the Cabinet because I don't think he's of Cabinet quality. I think he proved that in previous roles uh, and, and had to be removed as Education Secretary, you know, for one, for reasons of competence, essentially having to be removed uh, from uh, Secretary of State for Defence for, for reasons of being leaky. Uh, I don't think he was a suitable person to appoint. I'm surprised that people think he's such a political genius of the dark arts that they have to to include him because I, I don't I was struggle to wonder what these dark arts are supposed to be. Um, as it happens, I don't believe his exchange with Wendy Morton by itself is a resigning matter. Um, the question with him is not why should you get rid of him, but why should you ever have appointed him? That's the question that puzzles me. Uh, I, I, I and I because I think that while it was rude and childish, um, and in some professions unquestionably wouldn't be professional, uh, that. There's lots of professions in which that kind of exchange take place the whole time. Um, and I didn't personally think it went outside that. It's not how I would choose to respond to something, although it was petulant and rude, and I would never wish to be either of those things when I'm a compass mentis and can avoid it. Um, so, you know, so I don't wish this to be seen as approval for what he's saying. Personally, by itself, I didn't think that was a resigning matter. Uh, but, but, uh, but that has to follow the statement of, well, I'm unsurprised by a petulant and charged behaviour because I don't think he's of cabinet calibre. He is one of those people, Jane, a bit like Matt Hancock, as we'll discover when he's on Army Celebrity this week, who I I feel like has got cut through. I mean, mainly because of what happened with exams and schools during the pandemic. He's sort of elevated beyond 
just that guy, who, you know, just a, just a cabinet minister, that people do know who he is, partly because he's a bit Frank Spencerish, partly because of the tell Russia to go away and shut up, and then really mucking up the exams and the flip-flopping on reopening schools and all that. People do know, you know, when these stories circulate, people know who he is, and he's 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 not particularly well-liked. Yeah, I mean, cut through in a bad way, exactly. Yeah, exactly I mean, yeah. you want, you know, Rishi Sunak presumably just wants to a united Conservative Party and to get on with the business of governing, of getting control of the cost of living crisis. So why is he in the Cabinet? I completely agree with Danny. I mean, actually, it's not just about the words to... Wendy Morton, you know, these things are always a pattern of behaviour. Yeah. And the words of the civil servant were just appalling. And, you know, hearing allegations that there are more things out there, more well, things that he's done whilst chief whip and as a minister. Look, by the way, that, that is a completely different statement. Yeah. Right? So just to be clear, uh, if that is indeed a conversation that he had, that is completely unacceptable, particularly from, uh, it's one thing, one chief whip to another chief whip and quite another, uh, a member of the cabinet to the civil service. And I think that would be, by the way, if it were the case, completely unacceptable. And I think he hasn't denied the words, he's just denied that they were bullying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. And presumably the big problem, if you've got a reputation for this and you, there is a pattern of behaviour... Once the floodgates open, more and more people will start coming forward. So we'll see what, we'll see what happens. I'm still joined in the studio by Jane Merrick and Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, Jane, you're, you're a veteran of the last time all this. We went around all of this, what, 20 years ago? David Blunkett, Tony Blair. Well, in fact, the Tories, I think, the Tories in the 90s said they were going to do it, and then they Labour were against it, and then Labour were in favour of it, and then we had the whole palaver of Tony Blair trying to do it, and then the coalition dropped it. Yes, so I mean it was a huge policy of Tony Blair. Oh, I think he no, still, no. Yeah. I think he still talks about it, even in his um, institute papers. There's always a mention of IT cards, so he hasn't really let it go. But yes, there was there was opposition inside the Labour government. I think Gordon Brown didn't really fancy it. Um, Andy Burnham then tried to make the argument that you could sort of have multi uses, you could have your health details on there. And I think that at that point it started to lose the argument because once you start to add things, that weakens the civil liberties argument. And actually, it was all about, it was supposed to be about security yeah. and stopping terror suspects. So it's back. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what I feel about it really. I think it's still, for, for me, it's a kind of civil liberties issue. Why do we have to carry cards when we've got passports? I think this seems like a huge overbearing policy to tackle a very small issue. Danny, what did you think about this? Well, I, I was always against it at that time, and, and, and it did, you know, it came up even when I was working for John Major. I was against it, and I've changed my mind. And the reason I've changed my mind is, at the time, I couldn't see that the arguments for having what was an expensive and difficult scheme to implement were all that compelling. Um, I didn't think it would help that much with combating terrorism or benefit fraud. I didn't think it was, therefore, something we should have. I do think it can help uh, with illegal uh, migration and illegal working, and that's changed my mind. I think that it would, you know, there aren't very many ways that we can control this problem. We're struggling really uh, with it. Um, I think that maintaining a generous and um, and good functioning asylum and immigration system is really important on grounds both of protecting uh, um, the country and on and in terms of being compassionate to the people we bring here and giving them a good welcome. So I think having a system is important that works is important and this will help it so i've been persuaded on id cards and i the other thing that's changed over 20 years is that the i think the civil liberties case is simply diminished because there are so many ways in which my id is um kept you know by kind of amazon and apple um and um and tesco um and the idea that um 
it's going to be significantly more dangerous for every to, for us to have a universal ID when I already have to carry my driving licence around. I just don't, I don't buy but, it. But so. that's it. So we have driving licences, we have passports, and at least with private companies, it's a choice that we have. I mean, I don't like to have this, you know, the idea of having an infrastructure there that could be abused by a future government that then tries to kind of lay in extra things onto it. And actually, that's the thing, what disturbs what me. drives is the problem, right? So, so but that's the thing, is it? Not everyone... So, so there is a, the, the, the loophole is, well, I don't have a driving licence, or I don't have a passport. And but actually, the point that Stephen Kinnock does make, which we'll hear in a minute, is that he says it should be a simple, basic system. The problem that Labour got into... Because they start trying to add on all these other, other bits. But and once pieces. you have the architecture there, then yeah. it was then abused by a future government, and that's I think the concern of yeah. civil, liber- civil liberties. I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure that I know what it is that the government would be abusing it by doing. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, in theory, it, so. There are so many what there are so many civil liberties concerns I have. One of which is you know the kind of whole thing that's happening at Manton, uh, miscarriages of justice in the court system, the fact that we're not funding the court system. I just don't think having an ID card has anything other than a theoretical impact. You know, okay. it sounds as though it does. So, here's, but, so yeah. here's an example that if there is another pandemic and they try to introduce vaccine passports, I mean, vaccine passports are incredibly controversial and not popular at all, then that's when you start to say, you know, you haven't had your vaccine, it's on your ID card, yeah. why isn't it there? That's but we all had vaccine passports, so so we had, we had a vaccine... Um, passport on our on our phones in other words but you didn't have it, to have it you didn't have to well that, take that, that would be a decision about whether we had vaccine passports or not you see what i mean but it wouldn't and it's interesting because Keir's time at that point said it was un-british to passport vaccine passport, but then it did sort of end up supporting them but for having people. id cards yeah. doesn't neither means you have to have id neither it doesn't really make the difference on vaccine passports you can have vaccine passports without id cards yeah, yeah, yeah. and you can have id cards without vaccine passports that would be my argument i think and i you know, i'm very respectful of your point jane because I, because i held it for a long time myself uh, let's move on then because i want to make sure we've got time for this all aboard all in fact not all aboard uh, whatever the, the equivalent is for uh, a ship being sunk. Uh, the long-running battle to uh, for a new Royal Yacht Britannia has been sunk by Rishi Sunak. I'll find out what you two think about that first in, in a minute. But first, let's speak to Christopher Hope from the Daily Telegraph, the, the biggest in its time's only champion of this idea. Chris, how are you? Hi, Matt. Now, that kind of music is typical of the Times' coverage of this very important story. <laughs> that was inappropriate music, but that was like Captain Pugwash. No, it was Blue Peter. It was Blue Peter. Blue Peter, forgive me. Now, the problem about um, this uh, is not a new Royal Yacht Britannia. It's a national flagship costing £250 million, but, but raising many times more that in money brought into this country through soft power. It's never been published, covered properly by even esteemed organs like the Times, the picture on its page eight today is of an old image of this ship. The new images are on page three in all their splendour. I urge all of your listeners to buy the Telegraph today to, to marvel at the glory of what would have been this ship. <laughs> right, hang on. I'll do, while I'm doing that, let's get let's find out what Jane and uh, Danny. What do you think about the idea of a royal yacht? But look, there it is. Look on page page three at the beauty of the Telegraph. They can just fill their oh. plate with enormous pictures. Look so- at that. Everybody who proposes spending public money always says it'll bring in more money than we spend, <laughs> which can't logically be true. So essentially, uh, Chris, I've always been, you know, sympathetic. I'm always sympathetic to buying things because they're always good, but 
things cost money and there are other things to spend it on. And I've never... This actually also came up, actually, when, when John Major was still in power at the time. Um, and I've always seen the case for it, and you've always made it very eloquently, but I, I just think it's too expensive. And it's also symbolically, um, you know, a, a, a mistake. I've just realised this story is hope and anchor. <laughs> Sorry. Stop trivialising it. That's typical times trivialising. Jane? No, I think, um, I mean, respect to you, Chris, you're the captain of the ship, haven't left the bridge, you know, very uh, honourable position to take. But I think, I mean, I agree with Danny, it's too expensive. The symbolism, you know, the the king is trying to modernise the royal family into sort of having to cut... Sneering. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Chris, come back, come back and make one more... I I suspect you're not going to give up on this, so come back and make one more case for why we should have a new royal yacht. The point of this ship is it would generate hundreds of billions of pounds... Hundreds of billions. Are you paying more music under my under my work? Yes, the music. It's basically like the Oscars. It's time for you to get off, Chris. But I was letting you have one more claim. Well, just just very briefly, it's it's a massive opportunity. The campaign has not stopped. The next plan is public is privately funding. Perhaps you might might give me 10, 10 quid of your massive salary at the Times Radio, Matt Chorley. I'll tell you what. I'll give you ten pounds towards your royal yacht, Chris. And then you can come back as long as I get to go on it when it finally sets sail. Oh, he's already gone. He's already gone. Uh, Chris Hope there for The Telegraph. Jane Merrick from The Eye and Daniel Finkstein, of course, in The Times. You can read Danny in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, do we need ID cards? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So, 70 years ago, Winston Churchill abolished the ID cards that were introduced during World War II, promising to set the people free. Then, exactly two decades ago, New Labour sought to revive them, when the then Home Secretary David Blunkett suggested the idea is a way to combat terrorism after 9-11, benefit fraud and illegal workers. It led to years of bitter political wrangling. Here's Tony Blair defending that plan in the Commons. If we introduce an ID card scheme and reduce identity fraud, that that makes a major difference to the costs of government, to the costs of doing business. And in today's world, if we want to tackle illegal migration, crime and identity fraud, then using the new biometric technology to have ID cards is an important part of doing so. Well, the idea proved endlessly controversial. And although ID cards were rolled out in 2009, they were never made compulsory. And then in 2010, they were scrapped by the Tory Lib Dem coalition. But things move on. Today, we give so much more of our personal information away to private companies. 
and the challenges have changed. As the UK tries to find a way to tackle the channel migrant crisis, could ID cards help by making it harder to come here to live and work illegally? Well, like the government's, Keir Starmer's Labour Party is grappling with how to solve an apparently insoluble problem. So I spoke to Labour's Shadow Immigration Minister Stephen Kinnock about the role that ID cards could play. I began by asking him whether net migration overall to the UK should be lower than current levels. It's actually impossible to set a number, and I think counterproductive to set a number. I mean, let, let's look at, you know, what's happened with Hong Kong, with Ukraine. Who could have predicted that? So you, you set numbers, I think you, you make yourself a hostage to fortune. Uh, I think it's much better to have a system in place that actually works. If not looking forward then about whether it should be high or lower, do you think over the last 10 years immigration has been too high or too low? I, I think that we've what we fail to do with the work-based uh, migration side of things, um, particularly obviously since we left uh, the European Union and the single market, free movement of labour stopped, the government introduced a, a points-based uh, immigration system for EU citizens to replace free movement of labour, and labour supports that. We, we do not uh, support the idea of going back to the free movement of labour. Of course, it was a Labour government that introduced the points-based immigration system in, in 2008 for non-EU citizens. So we support the principle. The problem is that the government has taken a real sort of one-size-fits-all approach to it and has failed to connect uh, the points-based immigration system to uh, pro productivity, skills, training, maximising opportunities for our homegrown talent. We, we recognise that in some sectors, you need to balance the pressing short-term needs uh, against that longer-term aim of maximising opportunities for our homegrown uh, talent. But what the government has done has, in, in effect, just kind of opened up the system and we now have um, very high net migration running at around uh, 240,000 in terms of work visas, student visas, etc. Uh, and mainly coming from outside the European Union uh, and they haven't taken a strategic approach. So what Labour would do is improve the work, the points-based immigration system by having a dialogue sector by sector across the construction industry, agriculture, the health sector, et cetera, et cetera, um, to set workforce plans in place where the employers and trade unions and government sit down and say, right, this is our longer term plan, how we're going to maximise opportunities for homegrown talent. Uh, but in the meantime, as we get there, we recognise that we're going to need to continue to bring a certain amount of labour into the country. And is that more strategic uh, goal that we want to put in place and, and that is how we would reform the system. So your your question really about higher or lower, again the numbers don't matter as much as what is the actual outcome that we're seeking to achieve here. I'll tell you what Steve, people listen to this I know will be frustrated because, and it, maybe this is what's been brought out in the polls, that Labour 20-25 points ahead in the polls, but on the issue of who's best to deal with immigration you're neck and neck depending on which pollster 
you you deal with it. It's because people will be thinking that actually what you're trying to do here is please socially conservative voters, uh, former conservative voters in red wall seats who are really concerned about immigration and they think that voting for Brexit, taking back control, meant that there were going to be fewer people coming here. While you're also to try to keep happy those on the left who who want to return to freedom of movement, something that, that, that as recently as 2020, Keir Starmer uh, was was advocating, and that actually in trying to keep both groups happy, you're just not really answering a straight question. Well, two things on that. I mean, Keir made it absolutely clear, both in his conference speech and in a number of on a number of other occasions, his, his speech also at the Irish Embassy on let's make Brexit work, that we have absolutely ruled out a return to free movement. So that I think we we can sort of dismiss that argument uh, right off the bat. Uh, in in terms of the other question about the how do you make sure that you balance short-term needs against the long-term strategic objective? Let's take the NHS for starters. We've got a 7 million person waiting list in the NHS. We have a workforce crisis because successive conservative governments since 2010 have completely failed to do long-term planning for our NHS. The result of that is we rely on people coming from outside the UK to come in and support our NHS as nurses, as doctors, as care workers. I think there are very few people in the country, whether it's in red wall seats or anywhere else for that matter, that would say, we want to turn off the tap in terms of uh, people coming from outside the UK to support our NHS, because they know if we did that overnight, the NHS would fall over. The long-term plan, you know, Labour's put, made it absolutely clear we've got 7,500 more uh, training places. We've got that long-term workforce plan. That's how you balance the short-term needs that we have the, in many ways because of the crisis that Tory incompetence has caused against our long-term strategic objectives. So, you know, I'm sorry that I can't wrap all that up into a pithy soundbite, uh, Matt, but that that is the reality of the hard yards of good government, of competent government, of understanding what the country needs, what's best for our economy and what is best for our, our local workforce. Let's let's focus then uh, on the, the issue of illegal immigration, people coming across the channel in small boats, uh, over 40,000 now, you know, well up on uh, last year. How would a Labour government stop that happening? So, uh, first of all, we would scrap the unworkable, unethical and unaffordable Rwanda plan. And we would channel the savings from that into the National Crime Agency. We'd recruit a uh, 100 extra specialists to work with the French and Belgian, Dutch and indeed Albanian authorities far more effectively to crack down on the criminal gangs. We would also invest in home office caseworkers and decision makers and get them trained properly. Um, particularly, you know, when you look at some of the really worrying reports in the newspapers over the weekend about the total lack of training that some of these um, rapidly hired caseworkers are, are being given, you know, and making life and death decisions in many cases. We would invest in that so that we can get people through the system far more rapidly. We would do a returns deal with uh, France uh, and other European Union countries so that when uh, people are failing those uh, asylum when, the, when their application for asylum fails, uh, we, we would be able to return them uh, to the first uh, safe country that they were in. Or, of course, we need, um, we need also more proper returns deals with um, countries of origin so that we're sending people back. And um, finally, we would keep the 0.7% uh, 
in terms of development, because uh, that is actually a huge investment. It's a classic case of enlightened self-interest. We want to support those countries, many of them uh, failing states, uh, to get their systems back on track, which should uh, help us to remove the push factor, some of the things that are, are forcing people to try and make these very dangerous journeys and, and get on the small boat. So it's it's that four-point plan, which is actually doing some of the nitty-gritty hard yards of government again as i as i said earlier you know the mechanics that's what really matters not just chasing daily mail headlines and dog whistle things like talking about invasion and and you know the knee-jerk reaction that we're seeing let's stop chasing headlines and start actually getting to the root cause of some of these problems um is it possible to get to a point where nobody comes across the channel in a small boat um I would very much like to think so. Uh, I think that it, that that is a major challenge. But I think if you had the right uh, resources in the National Crime Agency, the right deal with France, uh, the right um, because of course the backlog here is acting as a business opportunity. The, the people smugglers know that you know if you if you're going to spend ten thousand dollars on trying to get on a dinghy across the Channel. And you know that when you get to Britain, because of the total and utter shambles that the Conservatives have created, you've got, on average, 480 days here before your case even gets resolved. You're going to spend that $10,000 because you know that you're, you've got your foot on British territory and you're going to find a way uh, then, and many of them, of course, then melt into the underground economy. So by by simply getting rid of this backlog issue by getting people processed in three, four, five months, you you would disincentivize that person from, from spending those $10,000. It simply wouldn't be worth it. So I think if you get all of these things right, you can tip the balance back into people realizing that it's just not going to work to get on one of those boats. And it, even if you do, you'll have wasted $10,000 if you're not a legitimate asylum seeker. Uh, and that's the way to break it. So I, I would very much like to hope and think that we would at some point get to a point where nobody was taking these life-threatening journeys. Uh, just finally, one argument has been put forward, the reason that people come to the UK rather than staying in the otherwise safe countries in Europe they've travelled through is lots of those countries have got ID cards. It makes it much harder to get a job, to get a house, to uh, establish a life uh, rather than in the UK. Do you think that ID cards, given the scale of the problem of people coming across the channel, should be back on the table? Is it, could ID cards play a part of the solution? I think they should certainly be on the table. It needs to be properly reviewed and discussed. Um, it was something that I think a previous Labour government got very close to introducing, and for various reasons it, it didn't come off. Um, but, you know, I, I really am struck by the fact, for example, I thought it was extraordinary in the wake of Brexit that uh, everybody said, oh, there are three million uh, EU citizens in the UK. It turned out there were five million Um you know, it, it is just simply extraordinary that we had two million more people in our country than we thought we did. That is just not sustainable. And a registration process and system needs to be looked at very, very carefully indeed. And that is certainly something that Labour is is reviewing and, and will be looking at very carefully. And, and to those people who say, oh, you, you know, we're not a papers, please, society. It was a big 
you know, Conservatives coming in in 2010 made a big play of the fact that we were a country and you, you didn't have to carry your ID card all the time. What's your response to them in terms of the, the benefits? Uh, and actually, I, mean, I suppose you could say that given how much detail we give to multinational companies the whole time, uh, that, you know, they know far more about us than the government ever would anyway through, through an ID card. But what would you say to those people who have concerns about civil liberties if we did go down the ID card route? Well, that is a very valid concern. And obviously, a, any review and uh, policy development on this ha- would have to be based on really close consultation with uh, civil liberties groups and making sure that all of the legal protections are in place. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it, th- this fell down it, under a previous Labour government was I think they ended up trying to put two much information into these id cards so perhaps you know rather than going for an all singing all dancing just something very simple and basic uh, as a as just a very basic form of id because that then doesn't get you into areas of of, of civil liberties uh, as much the bottom line is that uh, as far as i know just about every uh, member state of the european union uh, has a proper registration and ID card system. And, uh, you know, I, I think it can't be beyond the wit of man to um, to look at this and put a system in place that both uh, addresses the issues around civil liberties, but also makes sure that we know who is living in our country uh, and how many people are living in our country. And that will just be so helpful, I think, in terms of giving people the reassurance that they're looking for that we have control of our borders uh, and that we don't have the complete and utter shambles and incompetence and cruelty, frankly, um, that defines the current government. That was Stephen Kinnock, Labour's Shadow Immigration Minister. Talking about well, a whole range of things, the issues of right levels of migration, uh, uh, what Labour Party might try and do to stop them and people coming across in small boats, even suggesting it was possible to aim for zero people crossing that way. But also talking about ID cards. So many of you have been in touch about this today. Uh, Pam says, I've previously lived in seven other countries, all of which required an ID card. It was never in an imposition and was only ever helpful. Uh, Stephen says, had New Labour stuck to its plan for ID cards in the face of Conservative opposition, it's unlikely we would ever heard of the Windrush scandal, which occurred when the Conservatives got back into government. Well, actually, it was the Conservatives who uh, uh, dropped it. Um, uh, then uh, someone on Twitter says, basic compulsory ID is fundamentally anti-British. An Englishman has the right to roam the entire nation without authorities demanding he displays proof of who he is. This freedom is to be, es- is to be essential to the liberty the state has no right to interfere unjustly. Keep those coming in. 87222, Times T3. Using the hashtag Times Radio. You can email Matt at times.radio. We're going to look in more detail about how this might actually work and how it works in some other countries as well in just a moment. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio. We're talking about ID cards today after Labour's Shadow Immigration Minister Stephen Kinnock told me that they should be on the table as an option to address uh, the migrants, uh, the levels of illegal immigration. Well, let's talk about the case against them now. Silky Carlo is the director of the Big Brother Watch and joins me now. Hi, Silky. Good morning. Your reaction then to what Stephen Kinnock said, should this be on the table, given the, the wider challenges the government now faces? There's no case for mandatory ID cards in the UK at all. 
Um, there's absolutely no case that mandatory ID cards would solve the problem of the migrant crisis, but what it definitely would do is lead to a checkpoint society. Um, and this is an incredibly, incredibly slippery slope. Let's not forget that ID cards have been proposed as a solution for all kinds of things in this country. First of all, it was terrorism. Uh, it was COVID not that long ago, uh, voting, and now it's migration. Um, but yet there is no evidence base at all um, that this would work. And I just think that the, the Labour front bench seems so devoid of any kind of ideas or fresh ideology. They're reaching so far into the past. It's something that, you know, Stephen Kinnock says that it needs to be on the table. It needs to be debated. It's been debated endlessly. Uh, the British public feel quite strongly about this. Um, we don't want internal passports. We don't want to live in a checkpoint society. We don't want people being stopped and forced to present their identity to someone in authority. That's not the kind of society that we want to live in. I mean, you say that in the most recent polling and uh, you have been tracking this for some time in uh just august 52 percent of people supported a system of national id cards in the uk that's a, a very marginal uh vote and but you just said I there was think... no strong you just said a minute ago there was no strong support for it there is there's 52 percent uh, if you take out the don't knows obviously the don't knows there's what the 14 15 percent of those I mean, you know, it's not it's not the case that there's a marginal thing and the, the argument has been well and truly settled. No, I agree. But 48% of people that don't want ID cards is really huge. Then you've got the don't knows. And so think about what it's going to take to make those of us who will never carry mandatory ID cards to, to force people to do that. Um, this is a multi-billion pound policy that has failed time and time again in this country. There is a large section of the population that will never carry ID cards. Um, it's a fa The whole idea is a failure before it's even gotten started. And let's not forget, when you're presenting a policy like this, you really need to give an evidence base that's going to solve the problem that it claims to solve. In this case, it's not. What people need to come forward with is a compassionate and serious solution to the migrant crisis, not rehashing Blairite policies that failed two decades ago. So one of the things, um, the, the really striking things, though, is that so many other countries do have them. Lots of people texting in saying, uh, someone's just texted in saying, I don't necessarily see why ID, ID cards are such a bad idea. We have them in Hong Kong. And if anything, they make life more convenient. Right across Europe, which is the point that Stephen Kinnett was making, right across Europe they do. Let's take a listen to, we've got a couple of um, uh, uh, voice notes that I just wanted to play you. Here is Charles Bremner. He's the Paris correspondent at The Times. Contrary to what many people in the UK believe, the National Identity Card is not compulsory in France. The compulsory card was introduced during the German wartime occupation and it ceased to be an obligation in 1995. Nevertheless, French citizens need to prove their identity in all kinds of procedures in daily life, like opening a bank account or registering at the job centre. A driver's licence and a social security card works in some cases, but not always, so the great majority of the French hold either a national identity card or a passport. The difference is that the ID card, la carte d'identité nationale, is free while the passport is quite expensive. The ID card also serves as a passport for travel in the European Union and most non-EU European states except Britain. The ID card is small, it's the size of a credit card, its silicon chip carries quite a lot of information, including fingerprints. The latest version in circulation for the last couple of years is a standardised European format. You don't hear many complaints about the system, though there has been a row involving the use of English to translate some of the French on the card. 
was Charles Bremner, our man in Paris. And uh, we also had this in from Chris Barrett-Malloy. He is a Times Radio listener, but who uh, lives in Germany. Well, in Germany, ID cards are pretty ubiquitous. You get them from the age of 16 onwards. Uh, it's actually mandatory to carry ID here. Um, and people use them for everything, really. They have proof of ID, photo ID. They have proof of address. Uh, the uh, chip card stores uh, electronic information and also it stores fingerprints, which some have deemed to be a little bit controversial. But in general, it makes things, I suppose, a little bit easier for everyone. So if you are opening a bank account, instead of having to have a separate proof of photo ID and a separate proof of address, or you, you know, most people would have to bring in bills, etc., uh, this card has it. Um, whenever you move house, you bring it to the local citizen's office and they put the new address on it so you don't have to worry about uh, updating it regularly they last for 10 years um, and in addition you can also use them online to verify your identity so they have an electronic id function um, which means that uh, if you are opening a bank account online or if you're taking out some credit application online you can use the electronic identification uh, aspect of the the id card to to verify your identity. So that was Chris Barrett-Malloy. He's a Times Radio listener uh, who lives in Germany. Um, uh, Silky Carlo is still here from Big Brother Watch. Why is it okay for those other countries to, to have this and not the UK? I don't think that it is. I wouldn't take lectures from other European countries on identity cards. About half of them have mandatory schemes. Um, and look, do they have zero illegal immigration? They have quite serious problems. Um, I mean, the European Union is just about to introduce um, astronomical biometric borders and, and data storage. I mean, the, the whole direction is incredibly dangerous. Note another thing you heard a lot of talk about there, um, the electronic aspect of this. So there are a lot of ID schemes already, but they're about to take a very different form because they're now digital IDs. Um, where Stephen Kinnick is completely wrong, um, you know, which is um, in keeping with this very kind of retrograde policy. It's a very retrograde understanding of, of what an ID means these days. There is absolutely no doubt that it would be biometric. So that means that it will probably have facial recognition of fingerprints, maybe both palm prints. Uh, Andy Burnham is introducing vein ID in Manchester. So all kinds of bits of biometric information that you can put onto an ID card. And ID cards can be used for ID identity verification but they are swinging towards economic identity as well mm. internet identity medical identity so you know there is absolutely no doubt that an identity card scheme forget the card it's not really about a card it's about biometric data and the government's centralized data storage um that is what the labor party appear to be proposing they have out Tories the Tories you know you, you had Kit Malthouse on earlier saying that it makes him jumpy it makes me jumpy I mean it's just it's it's an extraordinary suggestion that there's absolutely no evidence base that internal passports and empowering police officers and anyone with an inch of authority to make the to, to make individuals to uh, present their identity on demand is going to do anything to solve the terrible scenes that we've seen of people risking their lives 
um, to seek refuge and risking their children's lives. The idea that a centralized government database is going to do anything about that rather than hearing yeah. about proposals about safe and legal routes is for the birds. Silky, it's really good to hear from you. Uh, thank you for that. Silky Carlo, uh, director of Big Brother Watch. Lots of people getting in touch and they agree with you. Uh, lots saying that they don't. I mean, we should point out that Yvette Cooper, technically Stephen Kinnock's boss, was slightly less keen on the hot sheep. Well, she's sort of just talked about some other things. Uh, she didn't seem hugely keen on Stephen Kinnock's idea, but he is the shadow immigration minister, and he says Labour is reviewing ID cards. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?